We're looking at Hebrews chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 10. Let me go ahead and read this for us. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself but only when called by God just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're continuing to explore here um, more about the priesthood of Christ, and here's why this is helpful um, to not only think about this, not just today, but really for the rest of our lives. Um, every, everybody has what you might call uh, essential attributes, about themselves, and also non-essential attributes as well. So uh, I'm a Korean-American male. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a pastor. These are pretty essential to me as they're kind of permanent things about me. Um, But there are also some non-essential facts about me, like how much I weigh, how tall I am, uh, what, what my address is, what my favorite basketball team is, Um, the fact that I like Starbucks coffee. Well, that one might be be essential. uh, These are mostly non-essential things. These can change. You know what I mean. And and if you really want to get to know me, therefore, you should focus your time and energy on the essentials and not so much on the non-essentials. When it comes to understanding Jesus and knowing him, his priesthood is absolutely essential. Understanding his priesthood is absolutely essential. Um, unlike uh, what was his skin color, what color was his eyes, and so on and so forth. If you want to know Christ intimately, you have to know the, the priesthood of Christ. And what we get from today's passage is one very helpful way to narrow in on that. And we've been talking about the priesthood of Christ uh, several weeks now. Um, multiple occasions, and we're being invited by the author of Hebrews to understand something further about the priesthood of Christ, and, and it is this, and this is going to be the focus of just our, for the purpose of our message today and our, and our use of our time, and that is how the author of Hebrews is inviting us to not only understand the priesthood of Christ, but enter into it ourselves, enter into the priesthood of Christ. Um, reflecting Christ in terms of reflecting his priesthood. If I tell you, um, hey, 
whatever you are doing, wherever you may be, it's very important that you reflect Christ wherever you are. I think most of you would agree with me on that. But if I were to ask you, okay, what does that actually mean? Um, how do you actually go about reflecting Christ? I think that's where you might have trouble articulating things. And this helps us. Uh, reflecting Christ in various areas of our lives really means reflecting his priesthood. You are a priest in the line of Christ. You are to be a priest like him wherever God has called you to be. So that's what we're going to look at today and focus on uh, today. So let's start here. Um, Let's start with verse 1. Take a look at verse 1 again. It says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. The word men, meaning mankind, uh, appears twice in this verse. Um, And that's to emphasize one point. The high priest appointed by God had to be a real human being. Why? Because that's how he can act on behalf of mankind. And this is a fundamental part of being a high priest. Someone called to act on behalf of others because he is from among them. He's from among them. So in order to identify Jesus as such a high priest, um, the apostle adds this in verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications uh, with loud cries and tears. Uh, The word flesh here is the same word that the apostle John uses in John chapter 1, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, meaning Uh, the word, logos, that created everything that has been created, uh, became a true human being in the flesh, a physical being. Um, And the the apostle here is using the same word, the literal word flesh, to indicate the same thing. Jesus was born physically as a human being. There's a pretty well-known heresy in in church history called docetism, And that's the view that Jesus only appeared to be human, but he really was not. He was more divine than he was actually uh, human. And that was ruled as a heresy, and that that historical piece of theology is very helpful for understanding this uh, even today. uh, Because people do think this today, uh, that Jesus, although he was here on earth, he had a human body, uh, he really wasn't human like us. He was more divine than he was human, which is not what the Bible teaches us at all. Um, Jesus didn't come to us sort of like Clark Kent from outer space, looks like a human being, dresses like a human being, but not really a human being. The Bible teaches us that the Word of God became flesh, actual human being. Jesus was born of Mary, therefore, as we confess in our creed. And that means he went through uh, the process of birth just like us, just like any of us, Uh, a nine-month gestation period and going from an embryo to a baby with a heartbeat and to being a baby born. He was truly human, truly among us. And so this is part of our confession in Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 27. It has this question, wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? And the answer is, Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born. Him being born. Okay. What, in a way, I think what we find difficult to believe about the eternal Son of God becoming truly human is really uh, the humility aspect of it. 
that such a humility would even be possible. I mean, it's really worth, I mean, the way you honor your Sabbath is really reflecting further on Christ. So further on, the, uh, reflect on this the rest of your day, that the Son of God who created everything out of nothing, who had existed eternally, self-sufficiently, became, became a speck of dust in that vast picture of creation, became one of us. Uh, that humility, that humiliation, that lowering of himself, is what his priesthood points us to. Um, and, and perhaps, you know, why we also think it's hard to relate to Jesus in his humanity is, uh, as we have heard from the past couple of weeks, he was without sin, right? Tempted and tried in every way, uh, suffered everything as a human being, yet without sin. Um, and that's hard to relate to for, for a lot of us because uh, we tend to think to err is human. Right, so if you want to really uh, empathize with me or sympathize with me, you ought to know what it's what it is like to err, uh, to to be to be flawed, to make mistakes, to sin. Um, interestingly, that's actually um, a dose statistic view of humanity, the the heresy that I mentioned earlier, where uh, the idea of human nature is originally a bad thing, and therefore Jesus, being Son of God, can't have a true human nature. Um, That's part of docetism. Or actually, human nature wasn't originally bad. It was originally very good. Remember Genesis 1 and 2? So Jesus' sinless life, if anything, makes him much more human than any of us are. Because the original design for humanity was sinless. So, so the disconnect we're feeling is not with Christ per se, it's with our own humanity. Okay. It's with our own humanity. And so this is another aspect to which why you know, Christ's priesthood, his priestly ministry is helpful to us. He came not only to sympathize with us, but to save us and make us born again as true humanity, new creation. That's what being born again means. And when we put our trust in him and, and we receive this new birth from him, we will begin to grow spiritually, even here on earth, grow spiritually along with him, just as Jesus grew physically here on earth along with us. And, and this language about him learning obedience and being made perfect really indicates that physical process of growth he went through, just as we go through a spiritual progress of growth here on earth. Now, here's the very important application point from all of this. Okay? All this uh, wonderful truths about Christ's priesthood and his humility. If this is true of him, his priesthood on our behalf, then uh, your ministry to others must entail the same. Okay? Your Christian life has to be purposed towards this as well. Uh, what do I mean? For one, you have to enter into other people's lives. Okay? You have to be present physically in one another's lives. Not conceptually, but in the flesh. You have to, be pre- you have to show up. Um, and as you show up, what, do you, what else do you offer? Along with that, your... your not only your thoughts, but your feelings, uh, your deeds, your words. Right? 
And as you become fully present in, in each other's lives, your love becomes activated, fully activated. And two, it also means that you must do this to the point of your humiliation, meaning your humility, you're being made low. Uh, you can't be a servant like Christ and remain high. Okay? You, you can't follow in his footsteps and remain perfectly comfortable. Uh, you can't run to Jesus and run from suffering. That's not what carrying the cross means. Right? And the Bible is full of these exhortations to carry each other's burdens, to, carry your, to deny yourself and carry your cross and follow Jesus. Here's one example that I found recently as I was just meditating through Philippians. And let me just breeze through this for you. Yeah, I'm not going like, to insert a second sermon with another passage here. I'm just going to breeze through this, okay? Philippians chapter 4. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Yet, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Okay. So what does Paul mean here in Philippians 4 about being concerned? Being concerned. It's not, right, clearly not a mental exercise, right? Verse 14, it's sharing in his troubles. Verse 15, it's partnering in giving and not just receiving. And this is how Paul charges the Christians in Philippi to imitate continually the priesthood of Christ by entering into someone else's troubles and thereby identifying the area of need and giving to that area of need. To be in the priesthood of Christ looks like this. Looks like sharing in one another's troubles, giving to those areas where there's need. Love, according to the priesthood of Christ, is better defined as this sort of uh, self-sacrifice. Love, in the priesthood of Christ, drains you. Okay. Love is draining. And just look at Jesus' life and consider him. Right, how he was so completely drained for the sake of his people, um, physically, emotionally, psychologically, relationally, and spiritually drained, even of his own blood. That was the cost of loving his sheep. That was the burden of sharing in our troubles. It was that great. And he paid that price willingly and voluntarily. Right? Jesus understood love not as a concept, but as a as a deed that comes with a price tag. And he paid that price. So here, when it says here in verse 2 in our passage today that he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness, that shows us him dealing with us gently meant he pays the price of being beset with our weakness. Gentleness in the Christian worldview, is not a tone of voice. Gentleness is not your facial expression. Gentleness is you being with 
the ignorant, the wayward, and finding yourself being beset with their weakness. That's gentleness. That's love in action. That's Christ-like priesthood. So here, because the, in a way, the, the audience that the apostle was writing to, the Jewish Christians, they were, they were quite welcoming of this idea of Christ being king. They were very welcoming of this kingship of Christ. But they were not as much understanding about the priesthood of Christ. And so that's why the apostle is placing this repeated emphasis on this. And I think we are very much similar in that sense, where we are much more familiar with Christ and his kingship than we are about his priesthood. So maybe that is why perhaps in the church we can find ourselves behaving in a more kingly manner than in a priestly manner. And what I mean by that is um, approaching the Bible and the application of the Bible more in terms of executing what's right, you know, executing morality, executing justice, which is needed. It's very much needed. But if it's not coupled with the equal amount of mercy and gentleness and sympathy for those who are weak, and ignorant, and falling wayward, that we're not fully representing Christ as he is. This is what the Apostle Paul is correcting here for us. Consider Jesus in his fullness, not just his office of king, being a king, but being a high priest as well. Meditate on him, not just as a king who came to to get rid of sin and death, but also a priest who came to gently draw near to sinners and draw them near to the throne of grace, and to do so with gentleness. So this is where the priesthood of Melchizedek is helpful. Uh, who's that? Uh, he's mentioned here in verses 6 and 10. Okay? Now, real briefly, Melchizedek was an interesting character because he was a, he's, he's revealed to us as a king, first, first in Genesis, who also offers sacrifices to the Lord. Meaning what? He was also a priest. Uh, it's one of those very rare occasions in the Bible where you find a type of priestly king. It's extremely rare. The, the two offices are so distinct and, the, and they're so different in their role uh, that most human beings throughout history didn't really hold the two offices at the same time. Right? If you think about it, temperamentally even, it's so different. One must execute the law and uphold justice without partiality, as a king. And, and as a priest, you must sympathize with, with those who break the law and show them mercy, right? The two can be different temperamentally. Melchizedek was a very rare priestly king or a kingly priest who held onto both offices. And it appears very briefly in Genesis 14 and then mentioned again in Psalm 110, sort of as a pointing forward to the Messiah who's gonna come in the line of Melchizedek. And so he kind of remains sort of this mysterious character all throughout the Bible until in the book of Hebrews, the, the apostle here points back to him to say he was just a type of the one who was to come after him, and that's Jesus, who is our Melchizedek, our priestly king. In Jesus, you have both a king who executes justice perfectly and one who sympathizes with you perfectly. And where do we see that happen? On the cross where the justice of God meets us with a kiss, with an embrace, 
This is the priesthood of Christ. Uh, we have to understand this just as much we understand the kingship of Christ. That he does, he does uh, rule justly. He does pronounce judgment because he is righteous. And at the same time, he is merciful to us. He is gracious to us and he is gentle with us. As C.S. Lewis once said, Jesus is a king who stoops in order to conquer. He doesn't just come over and just trample all over us. He stoops low. He lowers himself, humbles himself in order to conquer us. That's our priestly king. So the passage today is really urging us to behold the priesthood of Christ and, and enter into that priesthood a bit more in our own lives. I want to just close, therefore, um, with some practical thoughts of how we can do that, how we can enter into the priesthood of Christ in our everyday lives and just raise some perhaps helpful questions for you to ask yourselves and to think about and perhaps to talk about amongst yourselves in your home. But I want to begin with something preemptive, something that I think we, especially we as millennials, might struggle with. Um, When it comes to entering into our workplace or even our family life, um, just culturally speaking, for our generation, um, our tendency is to think that the bigger priority for us is not to go into these places with a, with a clear sense of purpose, but a clear sense of passion. Okay? That's just how we're wired culturally. <clears throat> so you may not be able to fully articulate just even for yourself what exactly is my purpose here, but you can probably identify with what pursuing your passion feels like and looks like. Um, but the, the problem with that is it gets us into tr- all kinds of trouble. But here's, here's something that um, is from Morton Hansen. He's a researcher at Berkeley, and he, he's the author of the book Great at Work. And he says this, Top performers in their field of work, according to my study, followed their passions, but as our data showed, that wasn't enough. In fact, some people who followed their passions exclusively ended up in misery. The dictum, follow your passion, can be dangerous. The best performers did something else. They infused both passion and a sense of purpose into their jobs. Purpose asks, what can I give the world? Passion asks, what can the world give to me? You have a sense of purpose when you make valuable contributions to others, others, whether that's individuals or organizations or to society that you find personally meaningful. Okay. So this is one of the reasons why I like science and research because if they're done right, it would only prove what the Bible has been teaching us all along. All truth is God's truth. And here we see uh, when you're clear about God's calling for you and, and the purpose for which he's called you, and think less in the cultural terms in terms of what can the, what can the world do for me, okay? uh, then you'll actually find the right way to cultivate your passions within that purpose. If you prioritize purpose, passion comes with it. But if you prioritize your passions, he says, uh, you may not always have a purpose and, and actually you can end up being very miserable It can be very detrimental to your performance at work. It's about asking what you can give more than what you can receive, which is essentially 
what entering into Christ's priesthood is all about. So with that in mind, let's press into our purpose. Okay, Let's ask the question about our purpose more so than, am I really passionate? Am I feeling a lot of passion about this? But let's focus on our purpose, okay? Take, <clears throat> take a romantic relationship, for example, and talk about a place where we're prone to put passion over purpose. Right? That's where the temptation is strongest, to put passion over purpose. Okay, so here. Are you in it ultimately and primarily to have your needs met by the other person? To have your goals and your dreams fulfilled? When really the fundamental question you have to be asking in a romantic relationship is, how am I being a Christ-like priest to my partner? Okay. Consider that. More specifically, how am I sharing in their troubles? How am I physically present and offering myself as a shareholder of their burdens? Okay. Not checking out of their troubles, but entering into their troubles, inviting myself into their troubles. If you find yourself asking these questions in a romantic relationship, chances are passions will get rekindled even when it wanes. Okay. If that purpose of service is clear, if that purpose of Christ's priesthood is clear. Okay. Parents, talk about a job that drains you, right? Uh, Jesus said, let... Let the little children come to me, right? Because I'm including them in my kingdom. I'm not shutting them out of the kingdom. They're part of the covenant. And yet, do we let them come to us, right? How are we proactively being present in our children's troubles? Are you letting them come to you with their emotional turmoil, with their tantrums, with their complaints, with their immaturity, are you letting them come to you as Jesus is calling them to come to him? Right? And it, that's why we're being drained. Is, um, this is not abnormal. It's a comfort, actually, to know that we're not failing when we're drained. Right? We're actually succeeding in imitating the priesthood of Christ when we feel utterly drained by our children. Uh, students... You know, are, you, are you dwelling with one another? Taking time out to be there for one another. Are you willing to step out of your own studies to enable others to better succeed in their academic life by investing in their lives? Are you present with each other's uh, weaknesses? Are you studying each other? Growing in the way that you can better serve one another. And similarly, for those of you who are just working Working faithfully nine to five, have you considered how God might be calling you to enter into your coworkers' troubles, Ident identifying their needs that you can perhaps meet, even if that means right you'll be further drained um, of your time and energy, which by the way makes makes your Sabbath rest that much more important and essential to enable you to do this to draw these boundaries uh, with, with your Sabbath rest so that you can draw a wider boundary when it comes to serving others. Uh, how can you begin to do that at work? Okay. If we can grow together in this direction and begin to identify a purpose that's greater than ourselves, greater than our own individual happiness, 
and see how Christ's priesthood is reflected through our lives. That's, that's how our lives will make sense. This is what God is calling you to do. Right? You don't really have to pray all that much to realize what God's calling for you in life is. He's calling you to do this, enter into the priesthood of Christ. The real prayer we should be praying is, God, help us do this better. Now that we know what you've called us to do, uh, give us the strength to do it. Fill us with the Holy Spirit so we may be empowered to live as Christ lived. Okay? This power comes from him. Let's remember that as we close. This power comes from our priestly king. Um, the more you study, grow, and meditate on uh, Christ as your high priest, the more you imitate him in his priesthood, and the more you, you celebrate and delight in how he has freely chosen to be drained himself for your sake, and really draining the cup of God's wrath for your sake, and fill you instead with his goodness, his righteousness, his perfection, his promise of renewal, his promise of eternal life, and the abundant life, and so that as the, the, to the degree that you are resting in that, you begin to open your life up to others, to be shared by others, to be consumed by others, and even be drained by others. Let's fill our tank with Christ and his priesthood, and let's allow it to overflow to those around us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your Son who came to us as our uh, Melchizedek, as our priestly king, uh, who not only restores order, uh, restores truth, and uh, brings to us his perfect righteousness, but also uh, with sympathy, with gentleness, with mercy, uh, walks us through this journey of conforming to it. Uh, so we will resemble it more and more, and day by day, uh, help us walk with this priest and help us trust in this king uh, and help us to resemble him in the way that we bring both your truth and your grace to our neighbors, to those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.